Where well, you sent me packing down Green River Valley I knew that if you couldn't then No one would have Lost myself drinking Hey, happy holidays, everybody. Uh, welcome to Mile High Stash, the podcast that asks what five albums you would take to a remote Colorado cabin if you were stranded during a zombie apocalypse. There's a holiday party happening at my house right now as well as uh, a guitar lesson and it snowed all day in Boulder, so that's eventful. If there's any noise, it's because there's noise. Uh, my kid and I just spent a just the two of us Thanksgiving in Belgium and, and Holland, and it was pretty magical. We, we actually got to see The Cure in Amsterdam. I was writing about the show, and, uh, and we got to get in, and, and uh, <laughs> Dutch people are really tall. It was hard for my kid <laughs> to see, but uh, it was really exciting because my kid was waiting to hear uh, Boys Don't Cry, and it was the very last song of a three-hour show. <laughs> um, anyway, I feel like uh, George Bailey at the end of It's a Wonderful Life right now because the Velveteers came over <laughs> for an interview, and I get to share that with you. Um, they're... They're exceptional and and um, in large part because it's it's just a um, an incredible female front woman and two drummers and uh, she plays guitar and sings and has this gigantic guitar sound that is is just overwhelming and uh, and the way that they literally jump into the crowd is something people never forget when they see the Velveteers. Um, a Demi and Baby from the Velveteers came over in a car that one of their dads had decorated with Velveteers advertising. They were really hoping that I wouldn't see it, <laughs> but they pulled up as I was outside, and uh, it, it was adorable. Uh, they're in between tours with the Black Keys and Greta Van Fleet right now, um, supporting the debut Velveteers record, Nightmare Daydream, which was produced by Dan Arbuck of the Black Keys. Um, before I get into my chat with the Velveteers, um, I definitely want to say I'm very grateful for our first sponsor of this episode, Moncton Guitars, which is in Broomfield and is my favorite guitar shop in Colorado. Not just their guitars, but the setups and repairs. And, and they're having a store-wide sales through December 10th. So uh, it's Monday right now. And in the 10th is what, Saturday? Yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, there, as I said, there's a holiday party happening. If you hear noise and then my kid's getting a guitar lesson from my bandmate downstairs. So I better shut up. Enjoy the Velveteers. You got a physical make angels cry. Moncton Guitars has been selling vintage guitars, amps, and effects for 31 years and now has a brick-and-mortar shop conveniently located between Denver and Boulder, just off Highway 36 in Broomfield. In addition to a fine selection of vintage and used gear, Moncton Guitars also carries new equipment from major brands like Epiphone, Guild, and Marshall, along with a great selection of Colorado-built instruments. 
Moncton also offers accessories, lessons, and inexpensive but expert repairs and setups. So check out MonctonGuitars.com today for more info or just stop by. That's M-O-N-K-T-O-N Guitars in Broomfield. The first thing I wanted to ask you guys about is growing up in Boulder. Um, are you both from Boulder? Yeah, we both are. Did you meet in high school? We met when we were 15 and 16, and we actually met at a show. So I guess we were kind of in high school. <laughs> yeah, we didn't go to high school, really. We went to online school. So um, we, we, we both didn't really have any friends. So it was nice that we met at a show. What show was it? Um, I can't remember the band, but it was like a reggae band, I think, yeah. at the Fox. It was bad though. It was like white guy reggae. I don't know why. I don't know why we were there. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure, but I just know that's where we met and we talked the whole time. We didn't really listen to the show. <laughs> you bonded over not liking that kind of music. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and now you're playing at the Fox. What's it like to you know grow up in a town and and feel? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but when you were kids, you might have been like, oh, maybe someday we can play here. Yeah, for sure. I remember um, our first time ever sort of playing at the Fox. We were um, we had just started the band, and we were doing this Battle of the Bands, and the audition was at the Fox Theater, and we were so nervous, and it was just, I don't know, it kind of came full circle because that's where we met. So even just doing that first little thing at the Fox was like a big deal to us, and then you know, several years later, actually being able to headline the Fox. Is, it definitely feels cool. Yeah. So we've just seen so many cool bands there that, you know, we grew up listening to. How do you grow up in Boulder and end up making rock? You know, I mean, my assumption is that everybody rebels. And so if you grew up on the Lower East Side, maybe you'd be playing hippie bluegrass. Mm. You know, but... <laughs> I think... We both just kind of came from families that were very into rock and roll. Like, Baby's family, like, Baby's dad would, like, literally follow the Who around yeah. on tour. Like, so we just both kind of grew up with it. And then everyone in my family is a musician and got me super into rock music. And then back in the 2000s, I think there was, like, a decent rock scene in Boulder. Mm. Um like, there is a band we both really bonded over called Rose Hill Drive. Yeah. Um, and so I think just, like, getting to see bands like that really inspired us. A lot of people don't realize that Boulder has kind of come full circle. Like, it, the punk scene was here. All the bands from around the state will come here to play in warehouses and stuff. And then, I don't know why that died out. And, and now you go to see a jam band at Mountain Sun or something, and there's... Not many places for a small rock band to play. Yeah, there's not. I think, at least as far as the amount of time that we've been a band, like the last eight years or so, the only places we've been able to see like cool, young, and up-and-coming rock bands or punk bands in Boulder are just at DIY places or at people's houses where it's none of like the proper venues in Boulder would recognize that as a venue but it's if you know someone who knows about that that's how you find out about the show yeah and that's where a lot of cool 
fans are and the, who are still doing it right now. Yeah. So how soon after this, uh, this ill-fated reggae show did you decide to make music together? Um, hmm. <laughs> I think it was like, was it pretty soon after? I think it was. I think it was only a couple of weeks. I think some months before that, Demi and I knew of each other through the scene, and I th- we had talked online. And I think was that that was before we met, right? Yeah. Demi had asked me to join a a band to be her drummer, and mm-hmm. I said yes. But then, like two days later, I said no, because I. I like missed two days of practice. I was like really obsessive, so I thought I was really bad now at drums. Mm. And I said, maybe, maybe ask me again in a couple months. <laughs> and then I think we saw each other in person. And then it was we kind of talked and bonded over wanting to start a two piece. And it just kind of we obsessed over that because we didn't have any social scenes to, to distract us. Yeah, this would be a good time to start intermittently asking what. Your choices are, and uh, let me just set the scene. You know, there is a zombie apocalypse. I don't know if it's the zombie apocalypse because there could be more than one. Uh, you know, but, but the two of you are stranded. Um, you're from Colorado, so you could probably imagine somewhere, you know, like Ward, somewhere like that. And it's the two of you, and there's food and water, and there is a crank-powered Victrola. There's nothing else there. What is the first album you'd want with you on vinyl? <laughs> oh, man. Okay, I made a list. I think that would be the, the, that's the very first one that comes to mind, just because <laughs> if it's the zombie, the, zombie, the zombie apocalypse and everyone's dying, mm-hmm. I feel like I need something that is kind of going to distract from the like death from all around but also at the same time fit that mood of despair mm. I'm probably in and that we're both in so I'd say Born to Die by Lana Del Rey nice. <laughs> would be the first one. I feel like with her music also like if there was a zombie apocalypse like it could be kind of a creepy like background music although I'm not sure that would be like super pleasant if you were actually going through it you know well, it's not going to be a pleasant experience anyway, so yeah. why listen to pleasant music? Mm-hmm. Exactly. You know? <laughs> and also, some of those lyrics talk about, like, um, her, it's just being her and two people. It's like, it kind of has, like, this cool, like, um, like, romantic, dreary, <laughs> sad, pop feel to it. Mm-hmm. And it would just be kind of, uh, kind of fun to, to have that be a soundtrack to a zombie apocalypse. And you two have been in a band together now for eight years, right? Mm-hmm. That's, when you're in the van, is it kind of like being stranded anyway? Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of crazy to imagine the amount of time we spend in a van. <laughs> it's a lot. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your stage show. I was in a, a band, I was a founding member of a band called The Operas, which I'm sure you guys know. And I used to go into the crowd and make everybody clap and be sort of aggressive about it, you know. And I was wondering when 
you all decided to take that to another level and say, fuck it, I'm going to take my instrument into the crowd. I think we just wanted to make our live show even crazier than it was. Yeah. And I think that's the craziness of a live show to me, especially within rock and roll, is all about the attitude. And mm. Baby was the first person to take their instrument into the audience and start start doing that. So I think that inspired us a lot. And when we saw the audience's reaction to it, we just noticed it really got everybody going and yeah it got them pretty hyped up yes i remember when i was growing up going to shows the shows that i would i would remember the most and love the most would be the ones where the performer even if it was like half a second they would like look at me and like interact with me for a second it would make yeah. my entire night and then it would make me just love that band even more it was just like the tiniest bit of acknowledgement of me and so i was like man if we take that and just go above and beyond with that like i if i was an audience i'd love that so much and it would be really fun and uh and i think it is like it's really fun for us to do it on stage and mm -hmm. interact that way it's a lot more fun actually participate like interacting with your audience rather than not <laughs> yeah well uh, it's unforgettable for the audience and it, i mean obviously it was unforgettable for you and so you wanted to do that do you remember what bands those were? I have this one specific memory of seeing Band of Skulls. Um, that's their band name, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, and it was just one moment in the guitarist. It was like in the first song, the guitarist just in time with like a hit in the music, like stepped right in front of me and like pointed the guitar at me. Mm -hmm. And it like scared me. Yeah. And they like back up. And then they backed and then they walked back. And that that just like made me feel so alive mm. and then me and Demi once saw the kills in California at the forum and Allison Mossart the singer she like sat down on the monitor right in front of me and like looked at me and we just kind of like stared at each other and then she like laughed and uh I like would no, never forget that moment yeah and she probably has no recollection of it <laughs> <laughs> what about you who did you see that made an impact on you as the performer you would be um, the Kills were a big one. We were huge fans of them. We still are huge fans of them. Um, let's see. Last year we went on tour with a guy named Des Rocks. I haven't heard of him. Yeah, he's cool. Um, he's from New York. Um, but just being able to tour with him, he has such an insane stage presence. So I think getting to see him every night on stage just really kind of wanted, made me want to take it to the next level and bring that same energy yeah yeah how do you um you've been around for a, a while but you just came out with your first full length so what's the process of i'm sure you've written how many songs a hundred songs maybe in the last eight years so how do you <laughs> decide sorry. which ones are going to go on the record <laughs> um that's a good question i think just for me with the last album the writing kind of started with like one song and that song just had like a certain energy and a certain vibe that I felt like really, you know, could have a whole album hmm. worth of songs on it. Um, so that one song was Nightmare Daydream and it kind of just inspired me to 
continue kind of writing in that vibe. And when I was writing, there was all these songs that didn't really fit in it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm very much with writing, like, I'm inspired by, like, the Beatles, like, banking hours and, like, sitting down and, like, writing every single day as much as you can, even mm -hmm. if it sucks. Um, so there were definitely a lot of songs that didn't fit on the album. And then, you know, every once in a while I'd get this song that would come to me and it would feel like it fit perfectly. So it was a matter of just kind of, like, really feeling the songs. That mm -hmm. was a big, big thing was just the vibe of everything. You got to tell me that Dark Horse is about the Dark Horse in, in Boulder. And if you say no, I don't want to, I don't want to hear it. I've actually never been to the Dark Horse. <laughs> I hadn't even heard about it until like a couple months ago. I was like, oh man, we got to get them to play our song there. Yeah. Like yeah. once a day. <laughs> I wish they had a jukebox. And that would be cool. It could just be that album, be yeah. the only one on the jukebox. <laughs> you know? I think maybe people will start disliking the album then, possibly. <laughs> okay, second choice. Um, Good Morning Spider by Sparkle Horse. Oh, tell me about that one. Um, well, Sparkle Horse, do you know who Sparkle Horse is? No, I don't. He's just a really cool artist that, um, I don't know, his music is just very magical. And I feel like to fully understand Sparkle Horse, you kind of just have to listen to him. But mm. I don't know, his album is like, it's kind of creepy, but then it has like really like, just really beautiful melodies that, I don't know, for me, I like to listen to Sparkle Horse in the morning when I'm just sitting down and drinking my coffee, and he's a really good songwriter. You're not going to have any coffee in this cabin, I hate to tell oh. you. <laughs> okay. I'll pretend. I'll pretend to drink coffee. Once the cabin fever gets deep enough, you know, you can pretend <laughs> successfully. It'll probably be better for me anyways that I don't have coffee, so I don't get so crazy. <laughs> Spirit Hound Distillers has been crafting premium spirits in Lyons, Colorado for a decade and specializes in gin, vodka, rum, and barrel-aged whiskeys made from Colorado ingredients. Did you know that the Whiskey of the Year is made right here in Colorado at Spirit Hound? Yes, Spirit Hound was honored to win the London Spirits Competition as both Whiskey of the Year and Best in Show. Everything Spirit Hound makes is from right here in Colorado. Come visit them for a tour or a night of live music and cocktails or ask for Spirit Hound wherever you shop in Colorado. How do you fill that space that you have to fill as a trio without a being, um, a, a band that's going to noodle and a band that's going to show off their, their chops, you know, that kind of a thing? Yeah. Um, I think we've always kind of been based in simplicity. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, I'm really about like the songs. Like I really love good songs, you yeah. know. I, I'll go to a show and see like, someone soloing for like 10 minutes and mm -hmm. it just doesn't really impress me that much because right. I think a lot of people can do that 
But I think if you're able to write a song with really good melody and, you know, if it means something, I feel like that's going to resonate with people. And that's kind of just been our goal all mm -hmm. along. And um, also just bringing a lot of, like, attitude to what we do. And I think that's also a big part of our, our live performance is bringing that attitude. And then we've always wanted to kind of, like, confine ourselves to just being three people and by writing these songs and, you know, having extra parts, it's kind of led us to be a lot more creative than mm. if we were to have more people in the band. Kind of like just figuring that out and how it translates. Yeah. I could talk with you for a, an entire episode or feature article or whatever just about your guitar sound. Mm. Just about how you developed this huge sound that's it's a band in itself but could you sum that up for me yeah. <laughs> i'm still trying to figure out my my guitar tone if i'm being honest but um when we first started the band i knew that i wanted it to be a two-piece and so i kind of went for playing a baritone guitar um just to kind of get more of like a bassy sound mm -hmm. and when i started playing guitar i just really liked being loud and i liked playing through fuzz pedals and just getting something really heavy. Yeah. Um, and so I kind of just messed around with, I don't know, I've played through bass amps and I've played through both a guitar amp and bass amp, and now I'm back to just playing through two amps. But I don't know. I, I really like playing in a way that kind of incorporates, like, a lot of rhythm mm -hmm. guitar playing and then also some, some lead stuff. Um, and so for me, that involves like a lot of octave pedals mm. to kind of get all those layers. Yeah. Yeah. How much of an influence is Black Sabbath? They were a big influence when I first started, just like the heaviness of it. Yeah. I used to be, I don't know, really into doing like more sort of like creepy type stuff when mm -hmm. I was younger, <laughs> yeah. which we don't really do anymore. I kind of grew out of that, but... Um, we used to, uh, after like band practice, Demi and I would go to like the playground near her house at night and like try to recreate the first uh, Black Sabbath like album cover, mm -hmm. like, taking photos. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Like just for ourselves, like we wouldn't even post it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, similar question for you. I, I mean, I'm sure that there was a point in your life because as a drummer, I had this point where you graduate from the drum set your parents you know gave you for Christmas or whatever to this is what I want to sound like. This is what I want each cymbal and each drum to sound like. So what drummers were influences on that, and how did you make that jump? I haven't even made that jump yet. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we... I've, like, made the jump, I guess, in terms of, like, specific types of drummers I want to sound like mm -hmm. and emulate and take inspiration from, but in terms of specific drums or drum sizes and mm -hmm. cymbals and stuff, like, I haven't quite uh figured that out yet especially in with this band taking up all of my time when it comes to like music and drumming we like the way i drum in this band and then johnny our other member who drums mm. with me the way we drum is so the opposite of everything i learned mm. of how to drum growing up it's like we drum with our arms we like we fully extend them to this like ceiling and then hit the drums as hard as we possibly can yeah which in like some ways makes the drum sound a lot worse but also 
it like makes it so you really feel it. Yeah. Um, and it just really works in the context of this band and Demi's songwriting. But through doing that, we break so much, so much equipment. You break a lot of sticks every night. We break a lot of sticks. We break a lot of drums. We break cymbals like every other week. Yeah. And our drums are all like pawn shopped drums that we've wrapped in um, dollar store birthday table wrap mm-hmm. <laughs> because like we don't have enough money to like get a a double drum kit that like matches and we're constantly like messing them up anyway. So yeah. It's it's ultimately like I I kind of just think. And also growing up, I always had this thing where if I was going to spend time figuring out what types of drums I wanted to play on and be really specific about that, which I, in hindsight, wish I had done. But in the past, I've always thought that I would be wasting my time putting energy into that rather than just practicing. (laughs) You might break them anyway. I might break them anyway, I guess, yeah. But I, I think, yeah, I just haven't, I haven't like dived into that yet. It's just been like if there's a drum kit there, well, I'll make it work. Yeah. When you're on tour with you know the Black Keys or the Smashing Pumpkins or somebody, do you get a chance to talk gear with these guys? Um, I definitely get the chance. I mean, usually when we first show up with our drums, everyone kind of laughs at them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially because like they they just look so funny with the rat like the wrap is falling off of it mm-hmm. and stuff. I think a lot of them respect it to a certain sense, you know. Like, yeah. Um, but no, I kind of, I always get in my head that I like don't, I get afraid to talk to them about gear and stuff because I sometimes will feel like I won't know enough and then they'll, they'll think I'm like, I don't belong there, Mm. (laughs) which I'm sure it'd be fine if we did talk about it, but I kind of get in my head about it and I don't, I don't ask too much. Yeah. Um, I played a show when I was about 21, I played a show in Los Angeles and we were opening for Mike Watts' band at the time. And I was loading my drums out right after our set because you can take things off stage really quick. And um, Jimmy Chamberlain, Stephen Perkins, and Taylor Hawkins were all hanging out there. And there's no way that I would have talked with them about gear. Like, like if anything would have come out of my mouth, it would have been like, you're awesome. That would have been it anyway. But I would love to see an article in Modern Drummer um, it's about you or someone like you instead of um, it's always these technically amazing drummers and it shows their whole setup and the size of each cymbal and drum and they talk about it. It'd be much better to <laughs> talk with somebody entertaining. Yeah, I mean, I would have appreciated it. I mean, I, I really do think, like, as long as you just, like, if you... I, you can usually make any drum kit work, even yeah. if it's a the cheapest. If it's a free drum kit from marketplace that's really beat up, you mm-hmm. know, if you just like change the heads, yeah, it's gonna do the job. Like it's drums aren't. You don't need them to. Be like super perfect at all, yeah. and that there's kind of like a. A magic sometimes in in, drums when they're, they sound kind of trashy. Yeah. Even even with music that isn't necessarily trashy music. Yeah. Like, well, if you look at you know most of who we think of as the best drummers of all time, they all had small drum sets. Yeah. Even John Bottom had 
um, only a tom here and a tom here. There were big toms, but that was all. That was all he had. Yeah, I think also something that kind of plays into my mindset with that is one time I was talking to Nate Barnes, Universal mm-hmm. Drive. Tribe. Yeah, and he was talking about how um, he was teaching drum lessons at the time, and he was saying how he sometimes will get a lot of kids who come in to take drum lessons, and their parents like instantly bought them like the nicest drum kit and that's Mm -hmm. their first drum kit and he would say how they don't really know he was like saying when he grew up playing drums he had a really bad drum kit and it Mm -hmm. made him work yeah to make it sound good to make it sound good and Mm -hmm. also he was like once i finally got to the place where i could get a better one it felt like i deserved it yeah and that i had put enough time into it to warrant investing more money into a better one and so I always in my in my head I'm like okay I really even you now, do deserve it though but even now I'm like, doesn't oh. he deserve it <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's it makes me get better staying in that mindset yeah that makes sense I asked Patrick Carney one time when I interviewed him why don't you get some glasses that fit you because while he plays they just fall off and he's constantly putting back them back on and he told me that he does that so that he has something to focus on other than his playing because he said if he focuses on his playing he's gonna mess up you know interesting (laughs) i never noticed that i guess i wasn't like i was always side stage watching so that's an interesting fact he's got a nice drum set though he does yeah 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 yeah, when me and demi went to meet dan for the first time Mm. at easy eye his drum kit was at easy eye and uh dan let me like play it and uh, I was so nervous being in front of Dan, I instantly just forgot how to drum at all. Yeah. So I just like sat down and I hit one drum and I was like, wow, yeah, it sounds good. And then I walked <laughs> away very fast. <laughs> okay, choice number three. Do you want me to do the next um, I right, choice number three. That's Dressed Up for the Letdown by Richard Swift. That's his first album. You're giving me a musical education today because I've never heard of this person. He's yeah. amazing. He's probably one of our favorite artists. He actually um, used to be in the Arcs with Dan oh, yeah. and Auerbach. Um, and so when we first went to Easy Eye to record our album, we like saw these pictures of Richard all around. And this was when we first really started getting into Richard. So it was kind of like a full circle moment for us because... I think Richard had just died like a year and a half before that. And so it was kind of just, it was weird being in the same place where like the piano that he played was like right there. Um, But yeah, Richard Swift is definitely one of our all-time favorites. Just really an incredible songwriter. Tell me more about his music and why you would, if you only had five albums, that would be one of them. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's kind of like, to me, the Beatles are another one of those bands that just, they're kind of classic. And their songs just have this endless magic in them. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel like the same for Richard Swift. Like, his music is just very, very magical. And sometimes it's really depressing and sometimes it's really happy. And I just never get sick of listening to it. Yeah, I really like albums that feel like a really good book. 
in the sense that when you put them on, you're like kind of instantly in this person's world, mm-hmm. and it like it in every sense it just tra- transfers you to another place, and his music does that effortlessly. If it, and through his lyrics and his melodies and his production and the way he displays his instruments um, are so uniquely him and so memorable and they don't get old the more like they just get better and better the more you listen to it tell me about this relationship that you guys have because you're so close and it's so easy going and you're off the road right now for what a few weeks or something and you still want to spend time together <laughs> yeah, we literally spend like every day together. Yeah, I don't know. I I think when I first met Baby at that show at the Fox, I just had like an instant knowing that they were going to be someone incredibly important in my life. And I think having a creative relationship and a cre- creative partnership, like finding someone that you actually have that chemistry with, is like it's really like it can be a once in a lifetime thing. Mm-hmm. And so I've always just really cherished being able to work with baby and um, be close with them. And then we're also just best friends. We, we just really love a lot of the same stuff and yeah. Yeah, I agree. We, we've had um, a time when we weren't like we'd started the band and then we weren't, in each other's life for like a period. And uh, I just, every single day I I felt like the path that I was supposed to be on, which is being like creative partners with Demi being in being in Demi's life and Demi being in my life. It just felt like that path, which was the path I was meant to be on was no longer accessible. Like it felt like I had been like, like we'd fallen off from um, <laughs> like destiny. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and so now that we are in, we've been in each other's lives again and we see each other every day, like I just really try to never take it for granted. Mm-hmm. And um, I've just never met someone like Demi who I just feel so connected to. And we can, we always have something to talk about. That's really beautiful. Yeah, I've, I thought we would have gone bored of each other by now. But <laughs> when you go on the road, you find out within a couple of days whether you can stand somebody. <laughs> and if there's anything you don't like about them, it, it turns to hate pretty fast. <laughs> oh, my God. It does. That, that's so true. Oh, <laughs> that's something I've been learning in like the last like two years since we've been touring a lot. Yeah, I've experienced that with like so many people. Uh, <laughs> so many people. So many people I ultimately love. Right. But but I like when we're on the road with them, I just find out that I do hate them at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> it's such a funny funny thing to be like touring is just such a, a weird thing to do. Mm-hmm. And you're just kind of forced to be with these people for like a long time yeah. so i think it only makes sense that people would start getting on your nerves but yeah just don't be in a band with them yeah maybe <laughs> or be like the ramones where they each had their own row in the tour bus and didn't speak someday <laughs> i didn't know that's very smart of them right now we have a van 
and we're all very crushed into it. And, yeah. Uh, it's very uncomfortable. <laughs> we all get like bruises from, because we're, it's like such uncomfortable ways we have to position everything because we have so much equipment in a small mm-hmm. van and our suitcases are all there. And so we'll just be going over the, like these bumps and being like forced into like sharp, like jagged corners of like road cases and stuff. It's a lot of drums. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And a lot of merch. And... Mm-hmm. <laughs> we also have two crew members in our, our van with us. Oh, great. So it gets... But gets pretty tight. But you don't hate them yet. No, no. <laughs> we we love everyone. <laughs> that sounded sarcastic. <laughs> I didn't mean it to sound that way. But well, I mean, when we hate them, they also hate us. You know, so it's like, it's reciprocated. And then when we love them, it's I uh, hopefully they love us too. But it's if you're really close with somebody, you're able to say I'm really fucking angry at you right now. Yeah. And then you get through it. You know, but this isn't a, you know, Brene Brown podcast. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, Demi and I will have moments where we like never want to see each other. But then like four hours later, we miss each other. Miss each other so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're on choice number four, right? Yes. I believe so. Yeah, we've, we've gone through Lana Del Rey. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think we're. Oh, yeah, morning. we have two more. Yeah. Good morning. Okay. Spider by Sparkle Horse. And Richard Swift. Okay. Um, my next one would be Daylight by Grace Potter. Oh. Um, I just really love Grace's songwriting. Mm-hmm. And I, I really love that album. I didn't like it when it first came out, but then the more and more I listened to it, I just really started to kind of fall in love with it. And I think if I was stuck in a cabin for the rest of my life, maybe it would give me a little bit of hope and inspiration. It might not be the rest of your life. It could be just until everyone except you is dead. Okay. You know. <laughs> and then you can go out in the world. Uh, but then it's, it's kind of, but that's kind of like the end of your life as you knew it, though. Yeah. Yeah. Sad. Yeah. You know, unless you, you know, don't really like people. You're <laughs> Charles Bukowski or somebody. Yeah. Then you're, you've begun a new life, one mm. that you've always dreamt of. <laughs> How did you get through the pandemic? Um, so it was kind of interesting timing when the pandemic happened because two months earlier was when we went to Nashville for the first time and met Dan Auerbach. Mm-hmm. And um, we kind of realized that he wanted to sign our band. So I think that was in February of 2020. And then the pandemic happened and we were kind of just like, wow, like do you think this this opportunity is still going to happen? Because, I mean, everything was just so uncertain at the time. And we ended up signing to his label, like, in the middle of March. Wow. So that happened, and then they were like, yeah, we want you guys to come out in, like, two months to record. And we are like, oh, my God, <laughs> we, yeah. we don't have an album yet. Um, I mean, we had all these songs, but mm-hmm. we didn't have, like, an album. So... We kind of just used a lot of that time to be creative and write and make demos. And we kind of got lucky in the sense that, like, you know, they would say they wanted us in uh, May or June, but then it would get pushed back yeah. more because the pandemic, it just wasn't safe to to really travel or go anywhere. So it kept getting pushed back. And then finally, in November of 2020, we were able to go there and 
record our album. So most of our, our time during the pandemic was just spent on really trying to be a band and kind of hone into the music. Yeah, some bands didn't make it through. Yeah. You know, like they had a big, their first big tour, first big album scheduled for right after that, and now they don't exist. Yeah. So good job. Thank you. <laughs> we're definitely very grateful and for, for the opportunities that we were able to have during that time. Yeah. yeah. And with the band that we were before the pandemic and after is definitely a completely different band um, in so many different ways, but also because Johnny jo had just joined or he just started playing with us right at the beginning of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And so through um, getting and working on that album to record throughout the pandemic, we were also learning how to play with Johnny. Mm. And I was like also like teaching Johnny how to drum. Like Johnny didn't really, he knew how to drum, but like he was mainly a, a guitarist before he started playing with us. Mm. And so we, me and him would like do drum practices like three times a week in addition to all the practice we were doing as a band just to kind of like figure that out together. Yeah. So many bands that have two drummers are, are known as, they're usually jam bands. You got the Almonds, you got the Dead, you got the Doobie Brothers, you know? So how do you kind of dispel the myth of... Wow. Um, how do I say this? Uh, people might see what you do and think these guys are just garage musicians, but you've actually workshopped really hard to play the way that you play. So it's not like you don't take it seriously. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, in my experience, usually the hardest things for me to play right are the things that someone who's been drumming for like six months can do Right. Just completely naturally. And the type of music we play usually sounds best, in my opinion, when the drums don't sound like they're being played by, like, a drummer who's been drumming for 50 years and is amazing. Mm -hmm. um, and so kind of just remember to lean into that, like not overthinking it or not, like, putting ghost notes. Mm -hmm places where they don't need to be like just because you can do it doesn't mean you should do it right and having the double drums really forces you into that to just like to, if you want it to sound good you like usually got to simplify it down it's going to be messy if one of you is doing something that, that you shouldn't yeah mm -hmm. it's incredibly hard to play with another drummer i've only done it a few times and just being in time that is, itself is incredibly difficult yeah yeah it's very you, you, it's one of the, and it was Demi's idea to do the double drum thing. Yeah. And um, something that I really appreciate about it is it really forces yourself as a drummer to know exactly what the drum part is. Yeah. Because as for drummers, you can usually, if you're good, you can kind of just kind of get away with like having a light idea of how the song goes mm -hmm. and kind of, you can improvise a lot here and there. Yeah. But, and the context of this band and with this music like we know every single drum part to every single note every like single 16th note we know what's going to happen yeah and it it helps it really lock in with the song yeah well i mean uh, you've said you both of you have said since we sat down that songs are the most important thing and so it's it's pretty obvious that 
when you play a show, you're not trying to convince the audience that you're good musicians. You're trying to kick their ass, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I think everything we do in our live show or just anywhere is always just to bring it back to the demi songwriting in the song. Yeah. yeah. Whether it's us bringing our instruments into the crowd or whatever somebody called like any gimmick that we do even the double drum thing as a whole it's just always to bring the attention back to the heart of it all which is the song yeah because that's what it's about for us and that's what to me makes the band special is ultimately i think demi songwriting well on on that subject a lot of people say that your second album is the hardest (laughs) It's the hardest thing, the sophomore jinx. You have your whole life to do your first album, whole life up to that point, and then your second album, they're like, basically when the first one is done, you start talking about it. So how are you feeling about it right now? <laughs> um, I'm feeling good. I'm excited to record our second album, and we're just in the beginning stages right now of, you know, writing and doing demos, but... Yeah, I'm trying to not let that um, that kind of outlook on the second album get to me, you know? Yeah. I mean, the sky's the limit. It's, it sounds like you also don't want to necessarily have a Velveteer's sound. The second album could be anything. Yeah. Is that true? Well, I think anything that we do, just because it's the three of us, is going to sound mm-hmm. like the Velveteers. And I think within that there's kind of endless possibilities to create and do something different. Yeah. Can we expect more songs um, like Brightest Light, you know, that might be a little bit more radio friendly? Yeah, for sure. Yeah? Yeah, I have a lot of songs in that that type of vein. Don't stop kicking ass, though. I mean, Yeah, <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> okay, last choice, number five. Number five album. <clears throat> okay. Um, Lullaby for Liquid Pig by Lisa Germano. That is an artist who Demi and I just started getting into like over the last couple of months. We had like known of one of her albums like for the last like six years, um, but didn't really like dive into it until just getting, I guess the last month, honestly, since we got back from tour. Um, and she is not as popular as she should be hmm. at all. Like, she, I don't think she has, like, any social media now at this point. Um, yeah, she's, she originally started off as, like, a violinist for, like, John Mellencamp. I think. Oh, yeah? And then she started doing solo stuff in the 90s and the 2000s. And she's someone who's, like, over, like, 20 years, every album she releases is just better than the last one. Yeah. It's just, I think, really inspiring. Um, we'll have to play the episode out with some of her music. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, anything you choose will be really, really good. I'm amazed that you could <laughs> agree on five. That's incredible. We listen to a lot of the same stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who picks the music in the van? Um... Is it usually? I don't think it's usually us. It's almost never <laughs> us. We're usually in the way back. It's yeah. um, at least on the last tour, it's almost always Johnny's choosing the music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
and Johnny's music taste is great, but also some like this music he likes is very, very pretty in a kind of a sleepy way. Mm-hmm. So our tour manager who does a lot of the driving, at least on the last tour, it would be like three in the morning, we'd be driving and Johnny would put on like an album that was practically like lullabies <laughs> and then instantly fall asleep. And then at the tour our tour manager would just be driving there like God damn it. <laughs> Puts a motorhead on in the, in the middle of the night. You know? He also listened to a lot of murder podcasts on the last tour. He's a murderino. Oh, well, I think we all were at yeah. that point. Like, because it was kind of close to Halloween. And yeah, those were entertaining. Sometimes it's nice to, when you're constantly around music, to kind of get a little break. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, hopefully, being stranded together in a cabin won't end in a murder. Yeah, maybe we can make a lot of albums. Yeah, we're either ending albums or murder. You know, time will tell. <laughs> Are you going to be around here for the holidays? Yeah. All the way through in, until January? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a big break, actually. Actually, we're going, I forgot about this, we're going to Atlantic City um, December, the first part of December to open for Greta Van Fleet. Oh, hell yeah. Home after that. So. Yeah, it's nice we have... Besides that, a lot of time home to try to make what comes next. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. You wish it was sunny, but it's not. Ha, ha, ha. The sun will come out the day after tomorrow. Ha, ha. That was Demi and Baby from uh, The Velveteers, one of... Boulder's great local bands. Uh, they're opening for Greta Van Fleet this Friday and Saturday, December 9th and 10th in Atlantic City. And they play the Bluebird in Denver, January 20th, and the Fox Theater in Boulder, January 21st. I know that because it was painted on the back of one of their cars. <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening to Mile High Stash, and uh, thanks to Moncton Guitars as well as Spirit Hound Distillers for sponsoring this episode Spirit Hound's that place in Lyons, you know, with with the whiskey from colorful Colorado sign outside. They have the best homemade booze in Colorado. And I know that because I've played there, uh, I, I don't know, dozens of times probably, and enjoyed the, the whiskey and the gin, especially, oh, and the moonshine, yes. Uh, stop by Spirit Hound sometime. And, and also... Uh, please follow Mile High Stash on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen to stuff. And get in touch with me if you have any suggestions, complaints, um, uh, holiday <laughs> recipes. I don't know. Uh, and, um, I'm at milehighstash at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. Happy holidays, and we will see you again soon. Smoke or a drink makes a laughing part easier. Ha ha. And now you are stuck with another addiction.